The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is August 1st, 2019, and on behalf of the director and staff of the U.S. Army War College, uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, and the Commandant of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Dr. Brooks E. Kleber Memorial Lecture Series. Tonight is our third lecture in the 2019 Kleber series, and the speaker's uh, books for tonight uh, are on sale behind the lecture room. We encourage you to purchase a copy uh, of the book for a book signing after the lecture. All proceeds from the book sales do go to uh, the Army Heritage Center Foundation uh, to help support us in everything we do here at the AHEC. So a big thank you to the foundation uh, for everything they do. So tonight's lecture honors the memory of Dr. Brooks E. Kleber. He was the former Deputy Chief Historian of the Office of the Chief of Military History. Uh, Dr. Kleber and, the leg and his legacy are, of course, why, what we're here to remember tonight. Uh, Dr. Brooks Kleber was a native of Trenton, New Jersey, but graduated and graduated from uh, Dickinson College uh, right here in Carlisle in 1940. He entered the Army in August 1941, went to officer candidate school, and was assigned to the 90th Infantry Division. He and his unit arrived in Normandy on D-Day plus five, and he earned the Bronze Star for gallantry in action. He was captured by the Germans on June 26, 1944, and remained a guest of the German Army until the end of the war. In early 1945, as the Allies closed in, the German Army began moving their POWs from, uh, from the more vulnerable camps. Uh, Brooks Kleber was ordered to make one of these moves, and when he went, he took with him two books in addition to his personal effects. One of them was the history, uh, A History of Colonial America, and the second was The Common People, 1746 to 1938. It says a great deal about the man that he treasured those books enough to carry them with him throughout the remainder of the war until he was liberated by American troops in 1945. After being honorably discharged from the Army in 1945 and returning to civilian life, he entered the University of Pennsylvania where he completed his master's and his doctorate. While pursuing his doctorate, he was hired in 1950 as the historian for the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. In 1963, when the Chemical Corps was dissolved, he became the chief historian for the Continental Army Command at Fort Story, Virginia. In 1973, he became the chief historian for the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command at Fort Story. And in 1980, he was appointed as the deputy chief historian of the U.S. Army, where he remained until his retirement in 1987. Dr. Kleber was active in the U.S. Army Reserve from his discharge in 1945 until his retirement in 1987, attaining the rank of colonel. Near the end of his career, Dr. Kleber presented the books he carried as a POW in Europe to the U.S. Army Military History Institute, which is now part of the AHEC. And we are pleased and humbled to preserve both of those uh, books and the story of the sacrifice they represent. Uh, if you have the opportunity, both of those books are on display in our research room on the other side of the, of the uh, complex. Uh, and so tonight, of course, we honor Dr. Brooks Kleber's uh, memory 
uh, by presenting the next in his memorial lecture series. And with that, I'm honored to present to you our speaker for tonight. Mr. James A. Hessler is a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg National Military Park and the co-author of Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. Mr. Hessler is the recipient of the I'm going to mess this one up, the Backelder Coddington Award, and received the Gettysburg Civil War Roundtable Distinguished Book Award for Sickles at Gettysburg, and has written several articles for publication. <clears throat> He's made guest appearances on National Public Radio, the Travel Channel, Pennsylvania Cable Network TV, Breitbart News, and the Civil War Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me give a warm AHEC welcome to Mr. James Hessler. Hi, thank you, Frank. Thank you, thank you. All right, well, thank you. Uh, you know you've arrived when you win awards that nobody has heard of, so. Well, uh, first of all, I want to thank everybody here at AHEC for uh, hosting me this evening. It's a real honor and a privilege to, uh, to be in front of you. Looks like it's a nice turnout for a uh, summer evening. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces in the audience, but I also see a lot of new faces as well. So a uh, uh, special welcome to those of you who have not had to sit here and listen to me on this before. Um, as Frank alluded to in the introduction, I'm going to be talking about some of my uh, work that I've published. Uh, it's actually kind of, as the kids would say, a mashup tonight. And let's see how the laser is going to work. But a mashup of almost two of my books. Uh, in 2009, uh, I wrote a biography of General Dan Sickles called Sickles at Gettysburg. And here we are 10 years later, and I've kind of done a companion piece uh, that was just published in June called Gettysburg's Peach Orchard. So it's Sickles the Man and then sort of the consequence of uh, some of his actions. Before I get started, though, I kind of almost feel obligated to kind of issue a disclaimer, uh, whether you're here in the audience or especially watching on the uh, internet when this is posted later. Uh, we're going to talk about Dan Sickles tonight. Uh, hopefully from the title of the program you, you've kind of got that. Um, Sickles is a fascinating individual if you are passionate like we are about the Battle of Gettysburg and the uh, American Civil War. Uh, to sort of draw on a phrase from another time, Dan Sickles puts meat in the seats and we've, we've, we've got a lot of people here tonight. Uh, but from my experience, he also will upset set some people. And uh, if you want to have some entertainment when this is posted online, look at the first couple of comments. I guarantee they will be anti-Sickles troll comments and uh, perhaps tro trolling me by extension, although I hope that is not the case. Um, but you will see something to that effect. Look, look, as a Civil War historian, as a biographer, it would be easy for a guy like me to do a biography of somebody like Winfield S. Hancock, who everybody loves, and just say, hey, Hancock was superb, and nobody would argue with me. Uh, but that's not really the role of a historian. And I think especially when you talk about the action that we're going to touch on tonight, uh, the Battle of the Peach Orchard on the second and even the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, why? Why people do things is almost as interesting to me as the what. And hopefully some of you um, will agree with that as well. So rather than hating Dan Sickles, I would argue that Dan Sickles is, in fact, a fairly relatable character. He often has women trouble, money trouble, and he hates his boss. And probably everybody in the room can, can relate to at least one and perhaps, perhaps more of those. So let's get started. So as I alluded to in the introduction, Sickles and the Peach Orchard. Why? 
Well, when we think of the second day at the Battle of Gettysburg, historically, we have, we have generally been sort of preconditioned to think of Little Round Top as really being the focal point of the, uh, of the action, the battle for the Union left flank on July 2nd, 1863. Uh, but I would argue through my work uh, that Sickles' move to the Peach Orchard really influenced both July 2nd and July 3rd combat and was, in fact, more influential on the Union defense and the Confederate attack, Robert E. Lee's objectives, Peach Orchard was more influential than, uh, than Little Round Top, and even other, some other more storied aspects of the battle, like the wheat field in Devil's Den. So I think Peach Orchard is really uh, one of the great unsung heroes of the battle and something that has escaped the scrutiny of a lot of historians. The impact of Sickles' move is going to be felt as far away as Culp's Hill on the Union right flank, and hopefully we'll talk uh, a little bit about that tonight. And as I alluded to a little bit in my introduction, it also impacted July 3rd. Pickett's charge, Pickett's charge wouldn't happen, in my opinion, without the peach orchard. So I think that all makes it uh, really important. But of course, it's controversial. And controversy sells. Did Sickles' move to the peach orchard help the Union cause? Did it hurt the Union cause? Did it help the Confederates? Did it hurt the Confederates? And I don't know that those four choices are mutually exclusive. But did all, you know, it's one of Gettysburg's oldest and most uh, enduring controversies. And folks, I'm going to give you the answer tonight to solving that controversy. Just don't share it with anybody, all right? Because we want people to keep coming back to Gettysburg. All right, now I'm not going to go full, full sickles on the, uh, on the biography tonight, but obviously, again, he, you can't get away from him when you talk about this topic. He is the primary protagonist whose decision-making drives uh, a lot of what happens in and around the, uh, um, the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road. So Dan Sickles, congressman, general, and all-round scoundrel. Um, over here on the left, this is a civilian image. It is actually his congressional portrait. Uh, this is Dan Sickles prior to the uh, American Civil War. And this smiling young lady over here is Mrs. Sickles. Uh, Teresa Bagioli, uh, who Sickles married in 1852 when, she was, um, when he was 32 years old and she was 16. Like I said, we're not going to go into, and pregnant, I should add. We're not going to go into, as I said, the full Sickles bio tonight. But from an interpretive point of view here, I would argue that one of the most uh, simplistic and shallow interpretations of the Battle of Gettysburg in the Second Day Interpretation, uh, one of the most simplistic ways of interpreting that is to say, well, Sickles is an idiot. The guy was an idiot. He should have been on Little Round Top. He moved to the Peach Orchard instead. Guy was an idiot. That's sort of the simplest way to do it. Um, another way to sort of interpret Sickles and his actions too is, well, he was a politician. You know, he was a politician and, and po politicians, you know, do things for political reasons and all of that. I, I don't personally think Sickles is an idiot. Now he is three things we hate all rolled up into one guy, I always say. Uh, he's an attorney, a congressman, and a New Yorker. So... <laughs> And again, if I offended anybody in the room, I'm a New Yorker, so I can at least cover that. 
But you know, he's a Tammany Hall Democrat, 1840s, 1850s. He's rising through the ranks of New York's Tammany Hall. And if any of you know the story of Tammany Hall, uh, graft and corruption and political kickbacks and everything that goes on with that. Uh, but he was an attorney. He was a member of the New York State Assembly where allegedly, allegedly, he outraged colleagues for introducing his girlfriend prostitute to the, um, uh, bringing her onto the assembly floor. Uh, but he was secretary to the US minister, uh, future president James Buchanan while in London. And then Sickles served two terms in the United States Congress from 1857 to uh, 1861. In my mind, that is not the resume of an idiot. It might be the resume of an astute politician, it might be the resume of a scoundrel, uh, but it is not in my mind the resume of an idiot. So when you look at Sickles, I would submit to you, look at it from the point of view that he is a, a fairly intelligent, fairly accomplished guy who must have impressed somebody in his lifetime to rise to the various stations that he did, including the voters of New York on, on a couple of, uh, couple of occasions. But again, y'all aren't here to he hear that tonight. You're here because he's scandalous. And uh, uh, as we said, Mrs. Sickles uh, probably has more than enough on her hands uh, coming home to Dan every night. So he, of course, first rises to some level of historical prominence uh, in February of 1859. Now, probably many of you know the story. What is represented on screen here tonight is a uh, contemporary image of his murder uh, of U.S. District Attorney Philip Barton Key on the streets of Washington. Key is, again, probably some of you know, Key was having an affair with Mrs. Sickles. Key was actually a friend of Dan Sickles, but Key was having an affair with Mrs. Sickles that was going on for several months. But in uh, late February 1859, Congressman Sickles found out that his wife and his friend were having this affair, and he shot Key down in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., right behind the White House. If you've been to D.C., you know Lafayette Square right behind the White House. Key sh Sickles shot Key down like a dog while Key was, uh, was begging for his life, all because of Key's affair with, with Mrs. Sickles. Broad daylight you know, like a dozen, maybe even more than a dozen eyewitnesses. Should have, been, should have been an open and shut case, but it wasn't. Because one of the things Sickles did, one of the things Congressman Sickles did, because he's not a general yet, one of the things that Congressman Sickles did was he assembled this legal dream team. The dream team got together and essentially came up with sort of, sort of a crime of passion defense, uh, kind of a combination of crime of passion and Sickles protecting his property, because by the code and the morals of the time, Mrs. Sickles was really considered Dan Sickles' property. So you kind of put this together, this idea of, you know, the key had violated the Sickles' house by sleeping with Mrs. Sickles, and the defense kind of put this, this, all of this together into what has been traditionally and probably inaccurately remembered as the first successful temporary insanity defense in United States history. Now, I'm not a lawyer. Don't beat me up too much on that. Bottom line being that Congressman Sickles, after a lengthy show trial, media trial that got all kinds of newspaper and media coverage at the time, Congressman Sickles was acquitted. Again, this is a contemporary image of him in his jail cell that would have been published in a, um, um, in a newspaper at the time. 
it, you know, we have, we have other battlefield guides in the audience. It's really not an exaggeration to say that the Sickles murder trial was the OJ trial of its era. Again, just for the celebrity and the coverage that it got for many years, as I've titled on the slide, I always referred to Dan Sickles as the OJ Simpson of Gettysburg, uh, which got a big laugh. Although today we get people on tours who don't know who OJ Simpson is. So then you gotta, you gotta figure all that out and it's, it's, it's just too much, it's only a two hour tour. It's just too much of a mess to, to go through that. But in case you're kind of wondering, okay, what is the relevance of this to the Civil War? and the peach orchard, um, I would argue there's at least two points uh, that, I think, that I think we can touch upon. First of all, the way Sickles emotionally murdered uh, Philip Barton Key and the way ultimately Sickles behaved himself during the trial, I think reviews, reveals Dan Sickles to be an emotional decision maker. Uh, now I already said I'm not, I said I'm a New Yorker. I already said I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm not a psychologist either, but um, I'm gonna sort of do some amateur psychology here. What I think you see with Dan Sickles is he's what would be classified today as an emotional decision maker. People who, are, um, who emotionally make important decisions often do so under stress. They tend to be more reactive. They tend to go more with their gut. They tend to kind of not look at the big picture, but only make decisions based on what impacts them. And although there, I think there are other instances of this in Dan Sickles' life, obviously the murder is the, uh, the most famous one of those. So there's that aspect of it, but then at a more practical level, the ensuing murder trial, again, in which Sickles was acquitted, he got off for murdering Key, but ultimately he took his wife back, and that was the even bigger scandal when he reconciled with his wife. The ensuing scandal around this murder and trial essentially ended, for the time, Sickles' political career. So that when the American Civil War began in the spring of 1861, he was no longer in Congress. He was back home in New York City practicing law as a private citizen. So I think those are the two sort of uh, relevant points that are gonna tie us to ultimately the Battle of Gettysburg. When the American Civil War begins, Dan Sickles needs a new career. And boy, does he find one. So this is a fairly rare image. Uh, you don't see a lot of two-legged General Sickles images out there, but this is one. So uh, obviously from the, uh, uh, the earlier stages of the American Civil War. But over the first two years of the war, 1861, 62, and then even into um, early 1863, Sickles rises up through the Army of the Potomac. And uh, he rises from brigade commander to division command, and then ultimately to corps command with fairly minimal combat experience. Uh, the one notable exception is gonna be the Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863, in which his third corps uh, is part of heavy combat and sustains heavy losses over a uh, uh, two-day period. So he's kind of, you know, some people have sort of characterized him as an example of the Peter Principle, a guy who is gonna kind of rise up through the ranks of the, uh, uh, of the army and kind of, kind of more or less exceed his level of competence. Uh, again, probably some truth in that, uh, but what I'll also say is a couple things that he is good at is he is good at giving speeches and raising troops 
Uh, that's going to help him. He's going to raise the semi-famed Excelsior Brigade in New York City uh, in the beginning of the war. But also, too, he's going to continue to show himself to be kind of the consummate politician. And because we have a mixed audience tonight, uh, the term I will use is butt kisser, okay? And you can kind of substitute what I'm really thinking of right now, but he's kind of a butt kisser. And what you see, I think, is in the early stages of the war, despite his checkered background and despite his lack of military experience, what you see from Dan Sickles is he is able on key occasions to curry favor from those above him. Sickles quickly becomes more or less a favorite of President Lincoln as Lincoln is looking for Democrats, immigrants, anybody to kind of help support the unpopular Lincoln war effort. And Lincoln kind of takes a shining to Dan Sickles as a Democrat in terms of somebody who can hopefully bring Democrats across the aisle into this war effort. But also Lincoln too seems to like Sickles as supposedly a man of action who's gonna get things done. Uh, as, as a side note, Sickles and Mary Todd Lincoln also become quite close, and uh, he becomes a social favorite of hers when her husband is um, um, is not available. And there's actually, you know, some surviving co correspondence at the Library of Congress where you know Mrs. Lincoln is saying things to Sickles like, "Oh, come on, Dan, you know, you you, you forgot to come by today. I, you know, I was waiting to go to the matinee with you, you know, and things like that." And it's kind of interesting to speculate on what that relationship might have looked like. Another person, though, who um, really enables Sickles' rise within the Army of the Potomac is fighting Joe Hooker. Um, so is Joseph Hooker, a rising star in his own right within the Army of the Potomac, ascends to division, corps command, and then ultimately for a brief period, command of the Army of the Potomac. Joe Hooker and Sickles seem to strike up a bond and, uh, dare I say, a friendship that every time Hooker gets promoted, Sickles is going to kind of rise in his wake. So Hooker gets promoted to Corps Command, Sickles takes the division. Uh, Hooker goes to Army Command, Sickles takes the Corps. And that helps, that helps basically Sickles, again, rise through, uh, you know, really despite not having any military background. And as I said earlier, with the exception of the Battle of Chancellorsville, Sickles doesn't have a ton of uh, actually what we would consider combat experience. Now, as we get into the Gettysburg Campaign, though, uh, the fun and the rapid rise within the Army of the Potomac is going to more or less come to an end for General Sickles. This is, of course, on screen George Gordon Meade. Pennsylvania native who takes command of the Army of the Potomac on June 28, 1863. Um, interpretation, the Sickles-Meade relationship. Um, when I first started doing this 10, maybe a little bit more than 10 years or so ago, when I first started doing this, what I felt was that interpretation was, again, sort of a very shallow sort of Meade, the West Point professional versus Sickles, the bumbling amateur. Um, and what, you, I, what I felt like you often saw in Gettysburg literature increasingly in the 1990s and early 2000s was sort of that. West Point professional, bumbling amateur kind of thing. And, and, and the problems in the personality and the communication issues 
that George Meade and Dan Sickles have during the Gettysburg campaign, there's no doubt that some of it does go back to, uh, to that difference in training. You know, again, the West Pointers, the non-West Pointers, there are definitely cliques within the Army of the Potomac, and the two sides don't always uh, commingle very well. But when I was doing my original research on the Sickles book, 10 years or so ago, uh, what struck me was how much during the, the winter of 1862 into spring of 1863, how much Meade and Sickles were really very much in different social cliques within the Army of the Potomac. Hooker, Sickles, and another guy that they, the three of them kind of team up with, Dan Butterfield. Uh, these three guys, they like women, they like to drink, they like to have a good time in camp. Again, if you think I'm exaggerating any of this, go back and read almost any memoir in the Army of the Potomac from the winter of 62 to spring of 63. And when they're not in combat, it is party time in camp. One of the few officers in the Army who seems to be excluded from this is George Meade. And, you know, God bless George Meade, you know, he's a solid, reliable family man. Uh, you know, he's just not sort of interested in some of the playing that uh, Sickles and his friends do. Uh, Meade's a very solid, reliable, dependable guy. He's not the kind of guy you're going to call to have a good time on Saturday night. If you want to have a beer on Saturday night, you're going to call Dan Sickles. If you want somebody to run the Army, you're going to call George Meade. So there's definitely sort of this long history that predates the, um, uh, the Battle of Gettysburg that goes on just uh, beyond just the training. Now, George Meade, as most of us probably know, again, he takes command on June 28, 1863, following the resignation of Fighting Joe Hooker. So as you move into the Gettysburg Battle, uh, June 30th, July 1st, morning of July 2nd, part of the problem that you've got is Sickles, Dan Sickles is really for the first time in recent memory on the outside of Army headquarters. He doesn't have a friendly face in headquarters. He doesn't have a guy who's going to kind of hold his hand when needed. And I think that shows in Sickles' performance at the Battle of Gettysburg. Okay, now um, you probably, I don't know how well you can read this here in the room with the lighting. But down at the bottom of the screen, if you can see that, and I'm going to read it if you can't, but down at the bottom of the screen, we basically have George Meade's order to Dan Sickles on the morning of July 2nd, 1863. Now, what we know about these orders were that uh, they appear to have been verbal. There's no written record, no written order. No written exchange from Meade to Sickles has ever been uncovered. So Meade appears to have issued Dan Sickles some verbal orders uh, on the morning of July 2nd to, uh, to occupy the Union Army's left flank. But also, too, the orders that I'm, going to about to read, that I'm about to read to you are George Meade's description of those orders. So if you don't like the way they're written, you don't like the way they're, they're, they're sort of broken out, it's not me, it's not Sickles. This is how George Meade later described his July 2nd orders. So you with me on that? Okay. The order is described by Meade. Quote, I had sent instructions in the morning to General Sickles, directing him to form his corps in line of battle on the left of Hancock's 2nd Corps, and I had indicated to him that his right was to rest upon General Hancock's left, and his left, Sickles' left, was to extend to the Round Top Mountain, plainly visible 
if it was practicable to occupy it. So I've seen a few little bit of reaction to that. So again, if you're familiar with Civil War and Battle of Gettysburg and controversies, uh, there's those famous words, if practicable, uh, that often seem to be at the heart of a lot of our favorite Gettysburg controversies. There's another piece to that order as well that George Meade didn't touch upon, but essentially the fact that uh, night of July 1st, morning of July 2nd, and I'm gonna have to come over here, Morning of July 1st, I'm sorry, evening of July 1st, morning of July 2nd, there were some elements of the 12th Corps under Henry Slocum that had been more or less positioned in and around the area that we know today as Little Round Top. So those are the general components of what Meade seems to order Sickles to do. So if y'all look at the map, as you probably, you can see where I'm kind of tracing here with my laser pointer, what looks like a J on Cemetery Ridge, or as we more famously call it, a fish hook. And you will see where I have the red arrow highlighted in almost kind of this broken up irregular V in front of the main line. What Sickles does in his interpretation, his rather liberal interpretation of those orders, is instead of extending the left of the Second Corps, and instead of occupying Little Round Top, Sickles instead moves his 11,000-man Third Corps almost three-quarters of a mile in front of the Union Army's main line of battle, or what George Meade intends to be the Union Army's main line of battle. Why? Why would Sickles do that? How could you mess up? How could you mess up an order as straightforward as extend the left of the Second Corps and occupy the Round Tops if practicable? Well, Sickles gave many reasons after the fact for doing what he did. Uh, part of what he thinks is that north of Little Round Top, and it probably, I'm sure many of us, you know, have been there familiar with the ground. But north of Little Round Top, Sickles and his staff increasingly become uh, convinced that some of the ground on that part of the field is not going to be favorable for the placement of Third Corps artillery. And that's going to become almost an obsession with these guys as the morning of July 2nd turns into the afternoon. Now, the other thing that happened and related to the artillery was at the Battle of Chancellorsville, Sickles and his men had been removed from a similar position that we know is Hazel Grove, and many people think the uh, example at Hazel Grove, where Sickles and his guys had been pulled out, of, uh, pulled out of Hazel Grove, Confederate artillery had come in after them, pounded the Union Army out of position. Many people think by moving to the Peach Orchard at Gettysburg, Sickles is almost trying to avoid Hazel Grove from happening again. So those are some of the uh, the military, the tactical reasons for moving forward as he did, uh, but also, and especially later on, Sickles claimed uh, that he was confused by Meade's orders. He wasn't quite sure where this 12th Corps position was that he was supposed to replace, and even worse, later on, George Meade, I'm sorry, later on, Dan Sickles insisted that George Meade had wanted to retreat from Gettysburg and that Sickles had moved forward to prevent General Meade from ordering a general retreat of the Union Army. And it's really this last point which is going to then dovetail into the, the so-called Meade-Sickles controversy that went on for many years uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg. But it's really, this, it's really this last point that I think is the reason why most historians hate Dan Sickles today. Um, you know, I will often see people saying, well, you know, Sickles got a lot of his men killed. 
Well, okay, he did. And generals on every battlefield get a lot of their men killed. Robert E. Lee got a lot of his men killed during Pickett's Charge. John Reynolds got a lot of his men killed on the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg. So the hatred of, Get the hatred of Sickles has got to go beyond that. And again, a lot of it is people who might not be fans of his personal character, but also to a lot of the mudslinging Sickles directed at George Meade in the uh, aftermath of the battle. And we'll, we'll probably come back and talk a little bit about that at the uh, end of the presentation. Now again, I don't know how well you can see this uh, with the lighting in the room. Uh, I'm sure it'll probably show up on the internet much better. But uh, this is an area of the battlefield that I referred to earlier, the area north of Little Round Top uh, that Sickles and his men believed was not favorable for artillery. Uh, it's an area on the battlefield that we often lovingly refer to as Sickles Hole. Uh, because in later years, he said, look, I wanted to get my men out of this hole and get onto the high ground. And hopefully what you can kind of make out in this image is there's a whole lot of rocks in some of the low ground uh, in that area north of Little Round Top, in addition to wooded ridge lines and trees in front of the Third Corps position that would have made it very difficult for Sickles and the guys to post Third Corps artillery. So they don't want that ground. They don't like that ground. What they prefer instead is what we know today as the peach orchard. Broad, flat, open ground, a position along the Emmitsburg Road, which many people would argue is more favorable for artillery than the, uh, the ground Sickles had to abandon. And again, when I say the peach orchard, I'm talking right there. So he should be here. But that, that image I showed you, the peach orchard is right there. Show you guys over here, okay? Peach orchard right there, right there. Intersection of the Emmitsburg Road, intersection of the Millerstown Road. As I said, again, broad, flat, open ground. So this is the ground that Sickles prefers over the one that he, is, he has been ordered to occupy by General Meade, and it's going to lead to some of the fighting in and around the ground. It's probably, how can I say this? It's probably been pretty much beaten to death that Sickles' move forward was not good for the Union defense. And I'm not going to argue that it was. I would, bet, I would get crucified on the internet if I tried to argue that it was. And I'm not going to do that. It's been pretty much beaten to death that Sickles' move forward ultimately disrupted General Meade's interior lines of defense, created heavy casualties within the Army of the Potomac. Sickles, this little V in front of the line, creates what we would call an awkward salient, which is susceptible to fire from two sides. And last but not least, uh, Sickles has left his left and his right flank kind of dangling in the air as he has moved forward to the Emmitsburg Road. I'm not gonna argue that that is better for the Union Army in any way, shape, or form, uh, because ultimately I don't, need to, I don't need to get into a whole lot of speculative what-if scenarios and talk about things that never happened on the battlefield. Ultimately, the results of the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Sickles has moved forward in his inability to hold that ground after heavy fighting. Ultimately, the results of the day kind of show what happened, that he can't hold the ground. So I'm not going to, give me a second. I'm not gonna argue that by moving out to the Peach Orchard, it was better for the Union cause, but I think the other half of the controversy that has never really been adequately addressed was did his move help, did his move help or hurt 
the Confederate cause, because remember there's two sides in the battle, and did his move help the Confederate attack or did it hurt it? And the concept that I've looked at to try to better understand that is a concept of what they call key terrain. Um, some of the military theorists of the time might have also used terminology decisive terrain, decisive points. Uh, the idea being that on a battlefield you want to mass your troops on a decisive point or key terrain which is going to basically be overwhelming to your opponent and cause, um, cause, cause you to win the battle. So I've kind of looked at this from the point of view, was this or wasn't this key terrain for the Army of Northern Virginia. And boy, I'm gonna to have to get up close to read some of this to you. What are Robert E. Lee's July 2nd objectives? What, what are his objectives? What's the plan? Well, Lee told us, at least in some of his post-battle reports, what his plan was. And Lee, in, in his post-battle reports, talks about the enemy held a high and commanding ridge along which he had massed a large amount of artillery. In front of General Longstreet, the enemy held a position from which, if he could be driven, it was thought our artillery could be used to advantage in assaulting the more elevated ground beyond. So I'm going to pause for a minute. In front of General Longstreet, the enemy held a position from which, if he could be driven, it was thought our artillery could be used to advantage in assaulting the elevated ground beyond. Robert E. Lee is telling us the Peach Orchard was one of the key objectives in his attack from which we could place our artillery and use it to advantage in assaulting the more elevated ground beyond, which is probably a reference to Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery Hill. Lee added later, it was determined to make the principal attack upon the enemy's left and gain a position from which it was thought that our artillery could be brought to bear with effect. So now he's said that twice. Two of his reports, he said that twice. So clearly the Peach Orchard was a significant objective of Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army on July 2nd from which to assault with their artillery to assault Cemetery Ridge. Part of the problem though that Robert E. Lee and the other protagonist in, in our second book, James Longstreet, part of the problem that Lee and Longstreet have though is they're coming into action here. They are relying on stale reconnaissance gathered early that morning that is ultimately gonna give them kind of an inaccurate understanding of where the Union Army's left flank was. But there's no doubt that this was one of the objectives. So what we're trying to show you here on this slide is kind of almost like a before and after. This is the idea of how the sickles move from Cemetery Ridge to the Emmitsburg Road, how that move disrupts the Confederate plan of attack. Now this first image, which we've labeled attack up the Emmitsburg Road, remember the Confederates have the wrong idea. They think the Union left flank is somewhere where it's not, but the idea being that if the Union line sort of stretches along the Emmitsburg Road where they think it's going to, General Longstreet's essential plan of attack is to more or less attack up the Emmitsburg Road, drive in the Union Army's left flank, and presumably drive the Union Army off of Cemetery Ridge, Cemetery Hill, and out of Gettysburg. But when Sickles moved forward, he threw any attempt by Longstreet to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. When Sickles moved forward, he basically threw that, out, that option out Longstreet's window. 
because the way Sickles is deployed along the Emmitsburg Road, then bending back through the wheat field, Devil's Den is down here, and a little round top would kind of be back over here, kind of off the map. By deploying the way he has, Sickles has made it basically impossible for Longstreet to attack as attended. So what Longstreet has to do is quickly and relatively quickly modify his troop dispositions and then ultimately the flow of the Confederate attack is going to more or less go completely in a different direction. So what's supposed to go like that is going to go like that instead. So you guys got that? So what's supposed to go like that has got to go like that instead. Okay, so you might be sitting here listening to this thinking, so what, what's the big deal? The problem is, is by not having time, I think, to properly prepare and reconnoiter and make his troop dispositions, Longstreet's second day attack at Gettysburg is, in my view, not as well managed as some other attacks that he has more successfully made on other battlefields. Um, and that's gonna cause not only some criticism later over Longstreet's Gettysburg performance, some of which is warranted, some of which is not warranted, but obviously it's gonna, at the end of the second day, prevent the Confederates from reaching their ultimate objective, which is Cemetery Hill. So, there's a lot of fighting. Four o'clock in the afternoon till about six o'clock, seven o'clock in, uh, in the evening on July 2nd. Ultimately, the fighting in and around the Peach Orchard itself, which we co will cover in more detail in the book, often spearheaded by uh, a Mississippi, uh, a general of Mississippi troops by the name of William Barksdale. Ultimately, what's going to happen is Confederate artillery along Seminary Ridge is going to spend several hours softening up Union defenses in and around the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road. And Sickles' defense, another one of the weaknesses of his position, is going to be basically be stretched so thin that in the early evening hours, General Barksdale's attack, often referred to as one of the most magnificent charges of the war, well-led, cohesive uh, Confederates who are just frankly ready at that point in the day to kill some to kill some Yankees are going to basically step off and almost just steamroll a lot of Sickles' defenders in and around the uh, Peach Orchard. Barksdale's attack and then ultimately his capture of the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road is often highlighted as one of the most singular successes by the Confederate Army at the Battle of Gettysburg. And I would argue that that popular perception of this being a Confederate success is wrong. Because what happens, although he temporarily, they do gain control of the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road, Barksdale and his men are gonna make the disastrous decision to push further towards Cemetery Ridge, will ultimately be repulsed by Union reinforcements. And in the process, Barksdale's gonna suffer almost close to, I believe, 49, 49% casualties, almost 50% losses, killed and wounded. His brigade is gonna get shredded. General Barksdale himself is going to be mortally wounded in trying to capture this objective. So, you know, I guess in the Civil War, 50% casualties could be termed as a success, but it's basically going to render Barksdale and his men uh, unavailable for any further activities for the, uh, uh, really for the remainder of the campaign. So, that ends July 2nd. July 2nd ends with Confederate forces in the Peach Orchard along the Emmitsburg Road. 
One of the things that we sort of don't always do well as historians is we always try to make Gettysburg, you know, day one, day two, day three. Like they're three separate events and the retreat, four things, you know, that have nothing to do with each other. The Peach Orchard, to understand the importance and the influence, you have to look at July 2nd and July 3rd really as a continuum. And what happens is, what did I tell you before? Lee wanted to get the peach orchard for artillery, and he does. So on paper, if you stop your clock at July 2nd, that would look like a success for the Confederates. But Lee uses that ground on July 3rd to encourage himself, to, to really convince himself to continue the assault that we know as Pickett's Charge. So Lee got exactly what he wanted, artillery along the Emmitsburg Road, artillery around the Peach Orchard, and the idea that Lee has on July 3rd is, I got it, this was a partial success, I got what I wanted, and now I'm gonna converge my artillery fire from the Emmitsburg Road and other points on the field onto Cemetery Ridge and use the artillery that I gained, the artillery ground that I gained, to support the attack. And again, the attack becoming what becomes known as Pickett's Charge. Lee says it in his report, with the increased support that the positions gained on the right would enable the artillery to render the assaulting columns, we should succeed, and it was determined to continue the attack. One of the, one of the, one of the most wrong things in Gettysburg interpretation today is this idea on July 3rd that Robert E. Lee was half crazed and a desperate old man and that he ordered Pickett's Charge. He threw away a big chunk of his army on Pickett's Charge because he was so desperate and didn't know what else he could do. Wrong. Long, Lee thought Lee thought that the ground gained along the Peach Orchard, the Emmitsburg Road, would be that key terrain, that decisive terrain that I talked about that would make the difference in the Battle of Gettysburg. So ultimately, in my view, yes, Dan Sickles overestimated the value of the Peach Orchard. Robert E. Lee also overestimated the value of the Peach Orchard. The key guy on the battlefield who did not overestimate the value of the peach orchard was, in fact, George Meade. So on the afternoon of July 2nd, when George Meade said to Sickles, nobody can occupy this ground to advantage, Meade was right. And the results of the third day prove that. So I don't need to go home on social media tonight and have my newsfeed cluttered with all these Dan Sickles what if questions. What if he stays and what if, you know, Longstreet has a head cold and, you know, what if they do this kind of stuff. Guys, you don't need to do that to answer the question. July 2nd to July 3rd, what happened? Sickles couldn't defend it and Lee couldn't use it to advantage. And I think that makes the answer to the great controversy really that it helped no one. And that's an answer that's always been, that's been staring us in the face for 156 years, but people you know, feel like that, well, if it hurts the Union, it has to help the Confederates, and it didn't help the Confederates. And that's, that's the answer to the great controversy. So what I've got here to kind of summarize that, it's a, um, uh, a terrain assessment uh, called Kakoa. Um, that is a technique that we've used in the past at places like Gettysburg National Military Park to acquire and preserve land. The idea being that they will, historians will assess the ground based on the role and the impact that it had during the battle. And if it's important during the battle, then the park wants to acquire it sort of thing. Uh, Kakoa 
K, the K in Kokoa is key terrain, key terrain that can give a marked advantage to either combatant. And again, my premise is the Peach Orchard did not give that advantage to either army. But then there's other things that, I, that I'm not gonna go into in the interest of time. Observation, covering concealment, uh, obstacles to impede troop movements. You can kind of decide for yourself how you think the Peach Orchard fits into those. But I do wanna mention at the end of the day, the A in Kokoa is avenues of approach to reach an objective. And I would say that by moving forward, Sickles did block Longstreet's avenues of approach to Cemetery Ridge. Now this is, a, this is an effect on Longstreet's attack that we've been talking about for many years. Well, you know, Sickles kind of acted as a buffer. Uh, Sickles kind of acted as a speed bump. At the end of the day, Longstreet and the Confederates suffer heavy casualties taking what proved to be meaningless positions. And sort of the analytic answer to that is avenues of approach. 1888. James Longstreet and Dan Sickles are touring the battlefield. It's 25 years after the Battle of Gettysburg. They're driving around in a wagon or whatever they're touring the battlefield with, and a newspaper reporter says to Longstreet, General Longstreet, what do you think? You know, what do you, th what do you think? Do you think Sickles' move helped or hurt you? And, and Longstreet said, Sickles' move forward hurt me because by moving forward, he basically cut off my room to work, my room to maneuver, and uh, you, know, I, you know, I had plenty of room to work if he had stayed on Cemetery Ridge, but when he moved forward, he cut all that off. That's the A, avenues of approach. So again, as I've said, not to belabor the point, I think neither army benefited it from it. But what happens to Dan Sickles? I'm not sure how to react. You know, Dan Sickles is the only wounded warrior in American history who can get a laugh uh, from that, but you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, as many of us know, Dan Sickles, uh, his leg was struck during the closing hours of July 2nd, struck by an artillery shell. Uh, he was carried off the battlefield, some say calmly smoking a cigar to, uh, to inspire his men, but, but don't feel sorry for him. The loss of Sickles' leg really, uh, really ignited what I would sort of call the third act of Sickles' career. You know, he was a rising political star, and then he was a general in the Union Army. And kind of the final act of his career, which he is going to live out for the remaining 50 days of his life, is war hero. Yeah, somebody laughs, so war hero. And he would become a popular fixture at battlefield reunions, uh, veterans gatherings. You know, people would say to him, you know, you know, talk all night, talk all night. They would like pound on the table to um, uh, to get him to um, to talk and tell his very his colorful anecdotes and reminiscences. And one of the things that he really played up was the fact that he had lost a leg. Defending, you know, defending the Union, defending the country, defending, defending um, against the uh, the rebel. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Secession. So, um, but anyways, so Sickles, you know, really played up the fact that he um, that he had lost his leg defending the country. And uh, there's a quote that I always use because I think it summarizes it so perfectly. Sickles was such a big deal in later years. Uh, he got to know Mark Twain. And Sickles was such a big deal that Mark Twain devoted a fairly significant passage of Mark Twain's memoirs to talk about meeting Dan Sickles, right? Like most people today have heard of Mark Twain, but Twain was Twain like went fanboy on meeting Dan Sickles. And, and one of the things Twain said that I think is perfect is he said, quote, General Sickles values the leg he's lost 
much more than the one he's got. And if he has to part with one, I'm sure he would rather lose the one that he still has. And I think that probably sums it up. Okay, so in closing, you know, we've talked about the military aspects of it. Now we're sort of transitioning more to the, the memory aspect of it. Uh, easily, easily my favorite Civil War bromance is the post-war bromance between our antagonists, Dan Sickles, James Longstreet. And again, you think about it, it's kind of perfect. You know, what's going on after the war? Both of them are controversial individuals. Uh, Sickles, Sickles, although beloved by many veterans, also over the years angers many of the George Meade supporters for his attack on George Meade. So there's definitely controversy surrounding Sickles. James Longstreet, of course, as many of us know, becomes embroiled in the lost cause mythology and gets blamed by many people for um, losing the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, and what happens and what happens is all of that is these two guys meet, you know, kind of on the, the veterans circuit. These two guys meet and over the years they become friends. And this is, you know, the two of them kind of advancing into middle or into old age and what they would have looked like, uh, what they would have looked like, you know, coming back to battlefields like Gettysburg. And yes, I've sort of summarized here what is perhaps my favorite uh, encounter the two have. Uh, it's the 1890s. They're in Atlanta on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, they've been boozing it up. They've been drinking whiskey and God knows what else all day. And at the end of the day, they're supposed at the end of the night, uh, they're supposedly going back to their hotel in Atlanta. And as the story goes, Sickles says to Longstreet, Longstreet, one of these days, you're going to have to apologize for shooting my leg off. And Longstreet supposedly says, apologize. You should thank me for leaving you one leg to stand on. And that was kind of the way the two of them bantered for the remainder of their lives. But there's another image of them together. Again, Gettysburg, this is 1888, 25th anniversary. Uh, there is James Longstreet in the center. There is Dan Sickles next to him. Who is that down here in the top hat? Who's that? Yeah, Joshua Chamberlain. I'll make sure they can see it on this side of the room. Sickles, Longstreet, Joshua Chamberlain. There's other notable veterans in the image as well. Uh, but I always say, you know, to people who worship Joshua Chamberlain in the 20th Maine from the movie Gettysburg and stuff like that, what does that tell you about the real Chamberlain uh, that saintly Joshua Chamberlain is hanging out with evil Dan Sickles? But that one sort of spin around in your head a little bit. But anyway, so this is the 25th anniversary, the two of them together. As I've said, they spent years uh, traveling the circuit together. And I think, I think a genuine friendship in addition to supporting each other's records. But in 1902, as Longstreet was in failing health and you know, shortly before he dies, uh, Longstreet wrote Sickles a letter that became a prized possession in the Sickles collection. And Longstreet wrote, quote, I believe it is now conceded that the advanced position at the Peach Orchard, taken by your corps and under your orders, saved that battlefield to the Union cause. Okay, I heard this couple of, ooh. Um, let's repeat it <laughs> for this side of the room. I believe it is now conceded that the advanced position at the Peach Orchard, taken by your corps and under your orders, saved that battlefield to the Union cause. James Longstreet, 1902. Did he believe it? Did he go to his grave believing that Sickles had saved the battlefield by moving forward to the Peach Orchard? 
Uh, you know, we'll never know, obviously, but as I said on my earlier slide, I would argue uh, that Sickles did successfully cut off what I'm referring to as Longstreet's avenues of approach, which did in fact uh, have a material impact on how Longstreet had to manage his attacks. So I think Longstreet, uh, Longstreet did think that what Sickles had done helped the Union more than it hurt the Confederates. That's what Longstreet thought, or did he? So, and with that, we're at the end, question mark. And so I've intentionally covered it as the end with a question mark because, uh, you know, I don't believe this controversy, Mead Sickles, Lee Longstreet, uh, I don't believe the controversy will ever die. I, other than getting troll comments and hate email and stuff like that, I hope the controversy never dies uh, because I think more than ever we need Civil War history to remain alive and one of the best ways to keep that alive is to talk about it and, and, and debate things like this. But I hope at least I've given you a flavor tonight which I cover in more detail in any, one of, any number of my books uh, that the Peach Orchard is I think one of the most important and underappreciated terrain objectives, uh, terrain features at the Battle of Gettysburg. So the next time you come to Gettysburg, you know, you're going to go to Little Round Top, you're going to do Pickett's Charge, uh, that sort of thing. Make the Peach Orchard more than a drive-through. Stop at the Peach Orchard, get out. Uh, you know, if you got a battlefield guide like me and the guide will be telling you, well, did you know he murdered Philip Barton Key and later he slept with the Queen of Spain? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sickles did all that stuff. Take time though to study the ground and, and ask yourself, you know, was it, was it the boneheaded move that history has made it out to be? So with that, I thank you for your time and your attention. And um, I think I'm gonna kind of let Carl navigate question and answer if we have any questions. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a, a good amount of time here for uh, questions and answers. So we can uh, go ahead and get started with that. Again, please remember that we've got uh, plenty of people here. So let's uh, start out with one question each uh, and we can come back to you if you have additional questions. So where would we like to, uh, to get started here? Do we have any? Any questions? He was that thorough, huh? Oh, here we go. There's a brave soul. <laughs> How come the Southern Army bases are named after Confederate generals? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Frank, you're the military guy. You want to field that one? <laughs> you notice we don't have Camp Sickles anywhere, huh? Think about that. About that, and that's sort of a that's sort of a uh, you know a, um, a representation of Sickles's post-war public relations problems. There are no Camp Sickleses here in the uh, in the uh, country. See how easily I turned that back to the the topic at hand. All right, other hands going up. Other hands going up. Okay, Jim, um, what you said about <clears throat> Lee's original plan and also with Longstreet, to control um, Emmitsburg Road and the area around it, including mm -hmm. the orchard. If that had happened the way they had planned, and Sickles did not occupy that area, would it be fair to say that, in the Confederates' mind, the round tops weren't even going to be figured in because they had no need for it? Uh, yeah, it's because, if he, because if he could get his artillery on, on, on the Peach Orchard and rake, just rake across Cemetery Ridge, in Cemetery Hill, there would have been no need to even 
take a second thought to even look at the, That's the round tops. It's a fair question. You know, so, so the question ultimately gets into, and it's a good question, thank you, Frank. Um, you know, the question ultimately gets into what if territory. I mean, I think if Sickles is in a by what if territory, obviously I can't prove my what if theory any more than you could prove your what if theory. But I, you know, I think making some educated comments, if Sickles is back where he's supposed to be, back along Cemetery Ridge, and at least extending his line to the Round Tops, if, if Longstreet and friends occupy the Emmitsburg Road and uh, Peach Orchard without a fight, I still think they're placing their artillery there. Keep in mind, they are now occupying that without suffering the heavy casualties uh, that they did incur in the real world by taking that. So if Longstreet and friends occupy this ground in stronger force uh, than ultimately they did, they've still got to figure out what they're going to do with the Union Army's left flank. Because, you know, the, the Emmitsburg Road is a key objective for the artillery, but they also seem to be trying to drive in the Union Army's left flank. A flank attack seems to be what they're trying to do. And my, my take on it has always been, if Sickles and the boys are back where they're going to be supposed to be, my take has always been Longstreet and his guys will see that when they get to the Emmitsburg Road, Peach Orchard, and ultimately still have to come around and try to outflank the Union left. I believe the infantry movements will still somewhat end up having to do the same thing. Just wherever the Union left is, that's, that's what they're going to go after. But as I said, the big difference is Longstreet is now doing it in different strength. The counter to that is I know many colleagues and friends who think Longstreet and his men would have blindly charged up the Emmitsburg Road into a Union left flank that is not there and clearly would not be there. Uh, but then Longstreet and the guys would charge up the Emmitsburg Road into sort of a phantom, non-existent left flank, and that then would have given Sickles and his guys back here the perfect opportunity to kind of rake the right flank in the rear of Longstreet's attack. I know many colleagues who say that. Again, it's a what if. I can't, I can't prove it one way or the other. But I would say when Longstreet got on the ground and saw the Union flank was not where he thought it would be, he modified his attack. And I think in any scenario, if Longstreet gets on the ground and it's not where it's supposed to be, he's going to modify his attack. And that's why I don't think Longstreet's just going to make some phantom charge up the Emmitsburg Road into a non-existent flank in our hypothetical what-if scenario, because of course it, it didn't happen. Yes, sir. Yes, did uh, President Lincoln make Sickles a general? Uh, and if he did, did he happen to wonder a couple years earlier about the insanity defense, and now you're going to make him a one-star general? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good point. Again, good point. Um, to answer the first part of that question, yeah, Lincoln definitely does enable Sickles' promotion through the ranks, uh, Brigadier General, and then ultimately Major General. Uh, the confirmation... The confirmation of Sickles's you know, promotion and his star, the confirmation of Sickles's star and his generalship uh, was was delayed and held up. The Senate wouldn't vote for it, and uh, just barely 
did pass uh, by a really, I think by a one vote margin. And many people do believe that a lot of that was because Lincoln ultimately exerted pressure to, um, um, to get that put through. Certainly, certainly, if, certainly if Lincoln didn't have a direct kind of impact on Sickles. He certainly had an indirect, I think, in terms of just kind of favoring him. Uh, you know, and as we said before, often a favorite at the White House uh, and that sort of thing. But the second part of the question, did Lincoln ever kind of say, geez, what am I, what am I doing <laughs> giving it to this guy? Uh, probably, but you know, again, as, as we said before, Lincoln needs Democrats. And uh, what again, and you know, obviously as we know, Lincoln didn't live after the war to really tell his tale long term. So uh, it might've been a different if, you know, Lincoln had lived and written his memoirs, we might know a little bit more about it. But at least from Sickles's point of view, what he said Lincoln told him was to the effect of, you know, you're a fighter and I need fighters. I need anybody in the ranks here who is gonna fight and kind of whip this rebellion. And you know, Sickles, I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna help you do that. Sickles said he enlisted in the army only intending to serve as a high private. Now again, you can kind of laugh at, yeah, at how preposterous that notion might be. Um, so again, I do think Lincoln did do that. The only other thing though that I'll, I'll mention, which I think is interesting on the Lincoln relationship, if Lincoln at the time didn't kind of say, geez, what am I doing giving command to this guy? I think by the end of the war, Lincoln's view on Sickles changes. And what I think by, you know, 1861, 1862, Lincoln clearly needs guys like Dan Sickles in the ranks. I think what you see in 1864, um, after Sickles has been refused a return to the Army of the Potomac, you know, Sickles tries to come back after losing his leg. George Meade won't let him come back into the Army. Sickles then starts going to Lincoln and saying, hey, what else you got for me? And I think what Lincoln starts looking more there is more diplomatic assignments for Sickles. And what I think by that time in the war, Lincoln has realized, mm, you know, the battlefield use, I, I've kind of expanded all the battlefield usage that I'm going to get out of, uh, out of Dan Sickles. So I think Lincoln's view on it does evolve over the uh, course of the war. Good question. Thanks. Anything else? Hi, first, thanks for the uh, great information tonight Thank and for, for speaking to us. We'd like to know if there, uh, if you have any insight into Sickles' subordinates, his division and brigade commanders. Did they support the move to go forward? What were their thoughts on, uh, you know, post-battle? Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy to answer that. Um, so it's it's interesting, as in a lot of other commands in the Army of the Potomac, you do have some cliques. You do have some uh, the professionals versus the non-professionals sort of thing. Um, the two guys that I'll touch on to, to answer that question would be Sickles' two chief subordinates, his division commander, uh, a guy by the a guy from Philadelphia by the name of David Bell Burney, and actually the other guy from Philadelphia too. Second division commander is a general by the name of Andrew Humphreys. General Burney is spends more time with the Third Corps and uh, frankly is a Sickles friend. They support each other, they tend to agree uh, with each other on, on the movements and that sort of thing. Bernie supports Sickles' move forward to the, uh, to the Peach Orchard and to the Emmitsburg Road. Um, and Bernie, it's actually Bernie who writes at one point, we have, in a letter to a friend, he says, we have great faith in Sickles, we think he will be president someday. Uh, which is the, yeah, could you imagine President Sickles? Any modern parallels there we want? 
type of thing. But Bernie, but anyways, Bernie, First Division, a supporter. Underneath Bernie, there's a number of brigade commanders. Uh, the brigade commander who mostly fought in and around the Peach Orchard, Charles Graham, is another New York City buddy of Sickles's, uh, kind of an old family friend. You can imagine he's supportive. However, the second division that I talked about uh, is commanded at Gettysburg by a West Pointer by the name of Andrew Humphreys, an old army regular who is also a friend of George Meade's. And Humphreys leaves some, you know, some great accounts. A, Humphreys has a pretty good battle at Gettysburg, although his men, although his men get really beaten apart along the Emmitsburg Road. By most accounts, Humphreys does a good job as a leader trying to hold his men together. But anyways, Humphreys has some accounts later where he just talks about, you know, I can't believe I'm serving under guys like this. He doesn't mention Sickles by name, but, you know, I can't believe I'm serving under guys like this. You can kind of figure out who he's talking about. Uh, so Humphreys is very unsupportive of the Sickles move, very supportive of his friend George Meade. Uh, so really kind of the moral of the story is, again, it depends on cliques. The enlisted men, I'll touch on that. The enlisted men in the Third Corps, for the most part, seem to love Dan Sickles. He's a fighter, he's an aggressive guy, he's charismatic, and in the veteran reunions afterwards, he always shows up with whiskey and cigars and, and maybe a prostitute or two. And you know, you know, for the common grunt in the ranks at the reunion 25 years later, that, that can go a long way. So again, I know that was a long-winded answer, but long story short, clicks. The, there, there's a pro-Sickles clique, they're with him. There's an anti-Sickles clique that's Mead supporters, as you can guess, they're not. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question right up here. It's been a number of years since I read about these sorts of things that you're talking about. My memory may be fading me, but I do recall that uh, the night before the third day, when Lee was addressing his commanders, yeah. he gave Longstreet directions to attack early okay. on, the f on the morning. And he didn't attack until, I think I recall it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon until he actually attacked. Okay. Had he done what he was supposed to have done, do you think that would have impacted what occurred at the peach tree? Yeah, great, great question also. And uh, Frank, do we have like an hour to get into that? Okay. No. Um, so, so what I what I think you're what I think you're probably referring to is what has often been called in the Gettysburg mythology, the sunrise attack order. Later on, later on, there was a, a, a theory propped up by Lee, Robert E. Lee supporters after Lee was dead that basically said that Lee had wanted Longstreet to attack at sunrise on July 2nd, and by not doing so, Longstreet delayed, attacked too late in the day, and was really heavily responsible for the uh, ensuing Confederate defeat. Most, almost, almost all, almost all historians today argue that the sunrise attack order was uh, was bosh. It was propaganda. It never It was never issued. And the record clearly shows that at sunrise on July second, Lee wasn't ready with his plans. So Lee did not intend for Longstreet to attack at sunrise on July second. However, the second part of that is true. Longstreet ultimately attacked at four o'clock in the afternoon. It took him a while to get his, move his troops through the back country. They had trouble finding a road that would kind of get him up opposite the, uh, the Union Ar Army left flank. So it is fair to ask if Longstreet had been able to get his troops into position earlier, could it have had an impact 
on the subsequent attack. And I don't have my numbers and my tables and my charts here in front of me I would show you. I've always kind of said over the years that I think if, and again, it's another what if, it didn't happen, but if Longstreet could have got his command in a position, I think around one o'clock in the afternoon, I think with given the movement of Union reinforcements on the left flank, I think an earlier attack might have been more advantageous than four o'clock when Longstreet did. Because by, by not attacking until four o'clock in the afternoon, one of the things that Longstreet inadvertently does is it gives the Union Army time to concentrate, the Fifth Corps, the Sixth Corps, all these other guys to come up on the battlefield. Again, a lot of moving parts. I'm not saying Longstreet could have attacked earlier, but I think if he had been able to, kind of mid-afternoon, to me, I think is the, uh, the sweet spot on when that might have worked. But, but again, it didn't happen, so, so we'll never know. You could argue that I was wrong because no way to prove it. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events. <laughs>